Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Looked at from the heart of combat, war can seem disorganized and chaotic, but overarching the conflict is typically some kind of thoughtful, well-ordered, even scientific strategy that is influencing when, where, how, and why dueling forces have met. My guest today will introduce us to a few of the military philosophers and tacticians who made the most significant contributions to the art of strategy over the last couple millennia. His name is Andrew Wilson, and he's a professor at the Naval War College, as well as the lecturer of the Great Courses course, Masters of War, History's Greatest Strategic Thinkers. We begin our conversation with a brief overview of what martial strategy is, why civilians should study it, and how the contrast between Generals Eisenhower and Patton delineate the difference between strategy and operations. We then survey several of history's most influential war strategists in the context in which their theories and doctrines were born. This tour includes discussion of how the art of war argues that a new type of war in a new type of society required a new type of general who could process conflicts like a supercomputer. We also do a dive into how Carl von Clausewitz emphasized the importance of understanding how complexity, irrational passions, and creative genius underlie contemporary warfare. We end a conversation with how military strategy has or hasn't changed in the 21st century. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash masters of war. All right, Andrew Wilson, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. So you are a professor of strategy at the Naval War College. Let's talk about your career. How did you end up at the Naval War College teaching the art of strategy? Yeah, um, well, first things first, for those who aren't familiar with a war college, a war college is uh, much more about the college, much less about war. It's not like we're out doing exercises in the field during the day. It's, it's a very academic place. It's, uh, in fact, it's a mid-career institution. Most of my, my students are uh, mid-career professionals in their 30s, 40s, sometimes 50s mostly from the various U.S. armed services, but also from allied nations. And we have a fair number of students from the diplomatic intelligence communities, a whole range of uh, sort of really wonderful professionals mid-career. So what we do is it's, it's a year-long course, and they get a master's degree in national security and strategic studies. And it's a, it's a very intensive course. And I teach an department called Strategy and Policy, where we look at historical case studies through the lens, not just of military and strategic history, but through strategic theory. Can the great masters of strategic thought tell us about why it was that the statesmen and military commanders of the past succeeded or failed and how we can take those lessons forward into the 21st century. Actually, a Chinese historian by training, I did a degree in modern Chinese history with a fair bit of ancient thrown in, but being a student of the 19th and 20th century in China is unfortunately extended period of war. You know, China brought low in the course of the 19th century, and then, of course, the Second World War and the rise of the People's Republic of China and Mao Zedong is, a, you know, it's a, it's a blood-dimmed history, but it also translated well to the War College, where they were looking to add more Asian content, specifically Chinese content. So I started off doing Mao Zedong and revolutionary warfare, and then I branched out into ancient Chinese classics, uh, particularly Sun Tzu's Art of War. So you uh, spend your career teaching officers about strategy, but the way I discovered you, you have a course or a lecture on the great courses called the Masters of Strategy, and this is directed to civilians. Why do you think it's useful or important for civilians to understand high-level military strategy? Because as civilians, we vote for our governments, and it's our, it's our political leaders that determine the policies that our military is then employed to serve. So I think the connection between policy and the actions that the military take is is absolutely fundamental 
to how our government works. And I think as an educated citizenry, we just should understand that, understand the, the vernacular of strategic theory and practice. And, and besides helping citizens become more informed, you know, a lot of times you see people, particularly in business, talk about, or even like football coaches who will like read The Art of War by Sun Tzu to gain insights about strategy in those domains. Do you think it's useful for that or is that too tenuous? I think it is useful if it's done judiciously and rigorously. I mean, these texts are essentially about using the asset at your disposal in, in a competition. And that competition could be between corporations. It could be between sports teams. So the value, for example, intelligence and, and what we call net assessment, knowing, knowing the enemy, knowing yourself, understanding the strengths and weaknesses of, of both sides and uh, anticipating how a contest between the two of you would, would, would evolve, therefore being better prepared for you know, the ensuing struggle. So you would never imagine you know, any football coach not watching film on you know, next week's opponent. So that's a process of you know, figuring out how it is the other team plays and crafting your game plan to maximize your strengths and compensate for your weaknesses and while at the same time exploiting their weaknesses and not allowing them to bring their strengths to bear. So, you know, that, that process of net assessment as the basis of strategy is, is exportable to a lot of different domains. Well, let's talk about definitions, high level. What is strategy? Yeah. The way we usually parse it is that we, we start at the top with policy. So these are the this is the political purpose for the war. What it is that the political leadership is seeking to achieve, say, peace and stability in the Middle East or the liberation of Kuwait back in the first Gulf War. Strategy is the means by which you translate political purpose into military action and how it is that you anticipate military action to deliver your political purpose. So strategy is the nexus between policy and the other dimensions of the other levels of war, the dimensions of war that we're, we're more familiar with, which are operations and tactics. Operations being essentially the big muscle movements, the battles, and tactics being the, the individual unit actions taking place on the battlefield. So strategy is, is the bridge between policy and military actions. So strategy is, is, is pretty high level. You're not getting into the details so much. You're staying, like, you're playing a 10,000 level. 10,000, yeah. 10,000. Exactly. Yeah, 10,000 yeah. feet. Well, and in your, your lecture, you give the examples of General Eisenhower and General Patton's as their different leadership styles as examples to delineate the difference between strategy and operations. Can you walk us through that, those two guys and their examples? Sure. You know, Eisenhower, of, of course, as the as the, the commander of allied forces in the European theater in the late stages of the Second World War, he, he sits at the nexus between political and operations. And yeah, I mean, he's a trusted agent of President Roosevelt. He conducts diplomacy on a daily basis, balancing the interests of the Brits and the Canadians and the Americans and the French dealing with the conflicting personalities of his subordinate officers. And he's almost perfectly suited to that task. So he's, he's, he's a perfect choice to, to operate at that strategic level where you see that overlap between military operations and, and political purpose. Patton, however, is, is most famed as being an operational genius. 
someone who was just a great student of war, developed a great knowledge of war throughout history, but also somebody who honed his intuition so he could make snap decisions on the battlefield and pursue victory with creativity and audacity. And he's exactly what you want at the operational level of war. He's a flamboyant and and somewhat volatile figure, of course. And the way I explain it is you have to think about it as Eisenhower is the coach and Patton's your, your franchise quarterback. Brilliant on the field, but you wouldn't want to reverse that relationship. You wouldn't want to bring the skill set of the coach, try to get them to master the operational level in the way Patton does, nor would you want to have the, the operational expert necessarily be at that strategic nexus. And it sounds like that could be tough as a, as a leader to figure out who is a strategic expert and who is an operations expert. Because typically the way we think of like promoting people, like in a corporation, even the military, it's like, well, if you're good at operations then maybe you'll be good at strategy too, right? So, but that's like the Peter principle. Like you'll, you kind of uh, get out of your area of competence. And and so, I mean, I guess, I imagine, imagine that's a challenge to figure out. Yeah, there's uh, the Prussian military theorist, Clausewitz, actually made a, I'll summarize the, uh, one of his points, which is that actually the strengths that make you a great tactical and operational leader can actually become a liability as you're promoted. Because the lower levels of war are quite often about routine and method, that there's doctrine. There are right ways to do things and wrong ways to do things. There's a lot of science at that that level of warfare. And that the mastery of those methods and those routines can sometimes handicap an officer as she moves up through, through the ranks to the position where they're 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 leaving behind most of the science and doctrine of war and entering the realm of art where they're balancing political considerations against military considerations and doing you know as much diplomacy as they are doing operational planning and so as you evaluate or as you know strategic thinkers like yourself evaluate strategic theories from you know f- from ancient Greece through ancient China to today, like what are you what are you looking at? What are the criteria you're looking at on determining whether a strategic theory is sound or even brilliant? It's it's got staying power, and in the sense that many of the great strategic theorists and the products of those strategic theorists are created in or immediately after periods of revolutionary change in the conduct of warfare and political systems, a whole range of things that demanded a a, a fresh take. So as the great strategic theorists are products of a very specific time and place, and you have to understand them in in that context of their creation, but it should be durable in the sense that it, it doesn't become a formula for success throughout the course of history, but rather it has insights that are timeless that it is it gives you tools of analysis that when you're evaluating a strategic challenge in the future allows you to unpack it in organized ways to kind of discern the extent to which you can follow this precept or that precept so they're guiding but more the classics of strategic theory are supposed to foster habits of thought and you want a pretty big shelf of strategic theory because Clausewitz says war is more than a true chameleon. Every war is different, but, you know, 
some ways at its heart, every war is the same. It has the same, you know, balance between reason and passion and the completely non-rational chance, probability, fog, friction. So ways of thinking about making that connection between military action and its higher purposes, and that gives you tools that cultivate those habits of analysis. That, that, that's what gets you onto the varsity squad when it comes to strategic theory. It's all about developing. I think John Boyd talked about this with his OODA loop, like mental models that you can use. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it, theory. Theory doesn't give you the answers, but what it allows you to do is you don't have to start on page one every time you're confronting a strategic problem or a political crisis. Because, and, and also all the great strategic theorists have an eye towards history. Many of them, you know, got, got their start as historians. But what they're trying to distill from history are lessons, not, not rule books per se, but takeaways. And part of the reason for this is no matter how long or intense your, say, military career has been, your personal experiences, your professional experiences are inadequate to dealing with the, the in, immense complexity of war. So how better to prepare yourself for future conflicts, rely, of course, on your own personal experience and, and professionalism, but learning from the experiences of others that give you insight into all the different forms that war can take and all the different you know, strategic quandaries you might find yourself in. So let's take a sort of a do a survey of some of these masters you highlight in your, your lecture on the great courses. And the first one from the West is Thucydides. And he wrote the history of the Peloponnesian Wars. And it's a, it's a text that's still read by military, military strategists. It's taught at the War College. So I, I think to understand Thucydides, we have to put into context his strategic insights, historical context. So it's about the history of the Peloponnesian War. Kind of summary, like how did it start? Why did it last so long? And then how did the Peloponnesian War finally end? Yes. Thucydides is an Athenian, we'll call him an aristocrat. He's from a wealthy, prestigious background. He actually served as a triarch, as essentially a commander of a small naval squadron during the Peloponnesian War and was actually cashiered for a conspicuous military failure. So as I like to tell you, my students tell my students that that, that failure cost Thucydides his, his citizenship and his military career, but it ended up only costing them a weekend in the sense that Thucydides used his, his forced retirement to expand and complete his history of the Peloponnesian War. Now, this Peloponnesian War begins in 431, and it's essentially a, a struggle between the two great powers of the, of the Greek world. Athens, this dynamic, commercial, rambunctious democracy, the, the, the classic sea power, and uh, Sparta, a more conservative land power. We call this sort of the, the whale versus elephant issue. And it's it's Thucydides chalks it up, not, not just to the crises of the day, you know, the Sarajevo moment that leads to the outbreak of the First World War. He sees the roots much deeper in terms of this long-term struggle for sort of hegemony among the Greek states. And he sees this sort of deep abiding fear in Sparta, a much more conservative status quo type power with the rising dynamism of Athens, which is becoming an empire and not put not just pushing its commercial interests but also its political interest. So it starts with a series of minor events in 431 but the war lasts for 27 years. 
And part of the reason for the protraction of the war is that we have such a radical asymmetry between Athens and Sparta. It's very difficult for Sparta as a land power to bring its strengths to bear in some sort of decisive land battle against Athens that that has almost infinite strategic flexibility and has a complete mastery of the seas. So the war begins with these sort of the two sides sort of fighting past each other rather than being able to bring their bring their strengths to bear, you know, directly on the others. And it takes decades for this war to resolve. Ultimately, Sparta has to become something of a sea power. It has to either build or borrow or rent a navy, become competent at naval warfare, begin to dismantle the Athenian commercial empire, which stretches across the Aegean, and ultimately face and decisively defeat an Athenian fleet. That happens in 404 BC. And with that, the war comes to an end, and Sparta dictates terms to Athens. And what were what was the like the lasting outcome of that? Like, how did Sparta and, and Athens fare years after the war? Many look at this war as a, sort of a turning point in Greek history. In part, one view is that Sparta is so materially and morally depleted by this struggle that its status as the the dominant land power in the Greek world is is fundamentally undermined, and that. Later, Thebes, for example, other land power competitors managed to, to best Sparta and become the hegemon. Athens actually, after a, a major defeat, recovers fairly well. It uh, doesn't rebuild the vast empire it had in the 430s, but it puts together a, a modest maritime consortium, as it were. Its economy recovers. But I mean, the Greek states are these these polis are are not particularly well suited for empire for hegemony. In fact, the whole purpose of the polis is to be singular, to be a local entity, and the idea of of the ability of the institutions of a polis to be able to run you know a hegemony is pretty much asking too much of them. And then, of course, there's this internecine warfare between the Greek states that ultimately opened the door first for the Macedonians, Philip and uh, Alexander, to become hegemons of, of Greece, and then later for the Romans to do something very similar. So why are we still reading Thucydides? Like what, it, what timeless insights about strategy can we take away from the, his, his book, The History of the Peloponnesian Wars? Uh, there's, there's so much. Thucydides is the, is the gift that keeps on giving. And you mentioned earlier that that you know, military students read Thucydides. Uh, I would say even more students of politics read Thucydides. I first was introduced to it in, in uh, you know, Ancient History 101, where it's a, sort of a, it's a window on, you know, life in, in classical Athens, in classical Greece. Later, if you do poli-sci or IR courses, you know, Thucydides is quite often trotted out as the ultimate realist or the founder of the, the realist school of international relations. So every generation of policy pundits finds their own Thucydides. So, you know, George Marshall at the advent of the, the Cold War said, you know, I can't imagine anyone being able to deal with this emerging situation without having understood the, the tensions between Athens and Sparta, between the democracy and the, the oligarchy, between the conservative land power and the, and the dynamic democratic sea power. So the overlay on, on the Cold War, the sort of the dramatic climax of, of 
the Peloponnesian War is a is a completely misguided adventure by the Athenians in an attempt to go conquer Sicily, you know, this vast piece of territory at the other end of the Greek world. They launch a massive expedition. And when that expedition gets bogged down, they double down. They send more and more forces, and they're ultimately completely militarily humiliated. And that misguided overseas adventure became, you know, became code for the Vietnam War, for the Iraq War. So every generation finds its own Thucydides. Today, we're talking about Thucydides' attention to the plague that ravaged Athens early on in the war. Some sort of fever, some sort of respiratory, you know, syndrome, as it were, devastated, perhaps killed 20% of the population of Athens while it was trying to wage a war and the, and the kind of psychological shock, you know, what happens to a society when, you know, it's hit with a massive biological weapon. You also see in, in Thucydides, this sort of, you know, where other theorists focus on the more operational levels of war, connecting the military actions to the political purposes. Thucydides forces us to interrogate how societies wage war and what war does to those societies, especially a protracted war, and how it can challenge political institutions and bring them down. So it's a history, but it has so much insight of lessons that can be carried if you do it judiciously, carefully and rigorously. There's a lot of loose application of Thucydides, but you know, that can be applied to a lot of different circumstances. Uh, one of my favorites is leadership. There are profiles in leadership, brilliant, awful, and everything in between. And there are these characters that, you know, clearly Thucydides knew personally, interacted with on all sides of the conflict. So there's these profiles in leadership. It's just, it's the gift that keeps on giving. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So let's move east. It's around the same time. There was another work of strategic theory that came out at the same time, about the same time that Thucydides was doing the history of the Peloponnesian War. And that's the art of war. And this is from China. This is your area of expertise. I think everyone's, had, not everyone, but a lot of people have this like a copy of the art of war. They quote it. Businesses like mm-hmm. to put it on PowerPoint slides, whatever. Yes. Let's get some historical context for this text. When was it written? And what was the sort of political and military situation in China at this time that caused this to come come to bear? Yeah, the the art of war. I'm in the school that that places the art of war at the in sort of the say around the 320s, 330s BCE, so the late fourth century. So it's it's about the same time as say Alexander, Philip and Alexander in Macedon. The purported author of it actually lived a couple of um, a couple of hundred years earlier at the end of the 6th century. He was op- operational about 520, 530 BCE. But what this later book does, it kind of appropriates the military bona fides of this earlier general and uses him as the cipher to make an argument. And that argument is about new requirements of military leadership and organization. And I talked earlier about how these how revolutionary changes in the nature of warfare and the political systems and things like that demand fresh strategic appraisals. Well, one of these is going on in ancient China, and it spans that entire period from when this general Sun, 
from whom we get Masterson, Sunza, to the actual crafting of the book, to the sort of culmination of this. And this is a period we generally refer to as the Warring States, which runs from you know, the 6 and 700s BC up to the first unification of China. And what's happening there is that you know, once small aristocratic you know, states, small states, principalities ruled by a warrior aristocracy are giving way to ever larger territorially, you know, states that are larger territorially, larger in terms of population, and increasingly bureaucratic. And rather than loose confederations of aristocrats, like you see in feudal Europe, you start to see the, the creation of something we might understand as kind of a modern state, where you have a centralized government with a centralized administration built on merit. And what this does by the state being able to reach down into society and mobilize you know, hundreds of thousands of young men for you know, infrastructure projects, for the military, be able to collect taxes from a much, much wider population base you know, creates this revolutionary, it creates this sea change in what these states are able to do militarily, for example. But all these states start to develop those capabilities. So as they're in this fierce struggle with each other for hegemony in, in ancient China, they're constantly trying to outdo the others in terms of how it is that you exploit these new capabilities. And what the art of war does is it, it tries to create the general the new general, someone who is master of the new realities of warfare, its scale, its organization, its logistical and manpower requirements, the dangers of war, because you know, war in the in, in antiquity was a seasonal affair. A few thousand aristocrats would go out, hack each other up, set up trophies, you know, sacrifice the gods, and you know, war's over, and they'd go, go back into it again and again and again. But now we have these ever larger states and these ever larger states are starting to be extinguished one by one. So it's this kind of cage match in ancient China. And the art of war is an answer to that political and strategic crisis in ancient China. So, so it sounds like the states were getting larger, but they were still fighting like they were heroic small-time aristocrats. Exactly. You know, because you had this tension, because the, as these states become more bureaucratic, you are relying more on you know, promotion by merit, you know, organizational competence, as it were. But these states are still ruled by aristocrats, people who, who have these sort of antiquated notions about warfare and about military command. Like, you know, the Duke of one of these states believes that he's the Duke, you know, because the gods favor his, his clan. And the way to keep the favor of the gods is to spill the blood of his enemy. So battle is, battle is actually kind of a holy place in this aristocratic construct, right? Whereas the, the author of the Sunza comes in and says, no, you know, war is a means to an end. It is a very expensive means. Therefore, if the use of it does not bring profit, if you're not stronger at the end of a battle, well, that's the route to destruction. And only by this much more rational, organized, professional approach to the recruitment, training, equipping, feeding, uh, and then ultimately leading in the field of these new militaries, that's the only way you're going to survive in this death match. So what are the big you know, theoretical prescriptions that the art of war has for generals? One of them is 
to make the most efficient use of your resources. And these resources are abundant now. But just because they are abundant in terms of manpower, the introduction of essentially mass-produced standardized weapons, uh, where the state is producing weapons rather than the warriors, you know, aristocrats showing up with their own chariots and armor, where the state takes over all that stuff, where these aren't private armies, these are these are national armies, as it were. So your resources are now abundant, but that that doesn't mean you can be profligate with them because the state. You know, one state over is just as powerful, has just as much strategic potential. And it really comes down to how well you use those resources. The other danger is, is to avoid protraction. Don't get involved in these, in these long, sort of hot and cold wars where you're constantly, you know, maneuvering against your adversaries because that, that's exhausting, right? The, the longer that an army is away, the higher the taxes are, the more levies of troops. So this, this starts to attack the very core of national power. And I think the third and most important thing is that this is a, a, an approach to war that puts a premium on the intellect. The general, the supreme general is, is the master organizer. But, but when you see him operating on the battlefield, he's kind of a supercomputer. He's absorbing and processing massive amounts of information. And he has the organizational wherewithal of translating that information, the power of his intellect into military action. And that's going to be the decisive advantage. It's not about whether he's not, he's personally brave. He's not leading from the front. You know, he's, he's manipulating this vast new machine of war from behind. And that can only be achieved with supreme intellect and supreme professionalism. So it sounds like there's a lot of a uh, net assessment going on. I think it's for him, for Sunza, like the, uh, the, the Supreme General would actually think things over before, like, do I even actually, should I even go to war? It might be better not to go to war. Abs- absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, says the, the supreme excellence, the acme of skill is to, is to essentially achieve your political objectives, defeat the enemy without resort to combat. To an aristocrat, that's, that's offensive. I mean, combat, that's, that's where we, you know, spill the blood of the enemies. We're satisfied blood vendettas. This is where we honor our ancestors and the gods. You're telling me I'm not supposed to fight? But the argument builds on the fact that the risks of war are now, not just the costs of war have grown up, but the risks of war have exploded. So you have to approach war and the use of the military very coolly, rationally, in, in some ways almost uh, arithmetically. You have to, in the first chapter, which is literally called assessments, you have to wage, uh, sort of weigh the, the strengths and weaknesses of two belligerents. First, in terms of the sort of psychological coherence, the moral coherence, the, that sort of spiritual strength of your adversary. Then you have to think about advantages in terms of terrain and weather, uh, sort of the physical world in which uh, this, this, the physical context in which this military contest is going to take place. And then you have to assess the strengths and weaknesses of the opposing generals, your own generals. Net assessment is, is not just about assessing the adversary. In fact, the self-knowledge part, where he says, know the enemy, know yourself. Knowing yourself is actually quite often much more difficult because you, you don't interrogate your assumptions quite often. So, this process of net assessment is absolutely crucial to figuring out essentially if you're going to fight, what is it going to take? What is it going to cost? And is the 
political purpose you're seeking? Is the piece of territory you're, you're trying to annex worth the type of costs you're likely to run into when trying to you know, convince this particular adversary to give up that piece of territory? That's a very, very difficult thing to do. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it sounds difficult. I mean, is the art of war, is the theory actually applicable? Because I mean, it sounds like you have to be very like a supercomputer in your brain to figure all this stuff out. And I mean, it doesn't really take into account the interactive and ever-changing nature of warfare. On, on the face of it, yes, because it's it's almost, you know, some have looked at it as, as a kind of really antiseptic approach to war that, you know, basically you, you just have to get the math right. And, you know, you follow the recipe, you get the math right, you know, you're basically guaranteed victory. But that doesn't take into account fog, friction, interaction. Some people criticize the art of war as, as not giving nearly enough credit to the adversary. You know, this is the, I call this the Patton Rommel dialectic, where, you know, as, as smart and as brilliant as Rommel is, well, Patton's read his book. So he, he's, he knows how this guy is inclined to fight and understands the strengths and weaknesses of that approach. So you have to be constantly interacting because as much as you're trying to compel your enemy to do your political will, your strategic will, he's trying to do exactly the same to you. It's a it's like a physical wrestling match on the battlefield, but also in the minds of, of the leaders of both sides. But my take is that the book goes to those sort of rhetorical extremes to push this sort of radical new approach to warfare that's quite different than, you know, the strutting, preening, bold, personally courageous aristocrats of old who charge into battle to seek glory with the stark new realities. So I think the author kind of pushes this idea that this new general is essentially the exact polar opposite of that older general who was all about the slugfest. So uh, that's the art of war. Let's move on to another strategic mask you highlight in your course. And this one, so you mentioned a lot of wor- words when you're describing some of the problems of warfare, friction, fog, et cetera. And there was one strategic theorist that he used these terms, and that's Clausewitz. We've been saying his name throughout this conversation. But what's Clausewitz's story? Who was he? And why are we talking about him in the 21st century? Yeah, Clausewitz is 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 kind of the the... The theorist's theorist, he, you know, pretty much brings it all to bear, all the criteria of, you know, truly insightful, durable, useful strategic theory. He's a Prussian military officer, minor aristocrat, hence the Karl von Clausewitz. He's a Prussian. Prussia is, is one of the German states that had had risen to sort of great power status in Central Europe under Frederick the Great, but had been brought low by a series of humiliating defeats at the hands of Napoleon in the early 19th century. And Clausewitz lives through this period. He enters the army, enters the artillery, I believe it is, at the age of 12 and, and spends his entire career in the military. He's not a battlefield commander by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, he has commanded, but he's primarily a He's a staff officer. He's an organizer, but he's also an educator. His great love in life, his great passion was the study of history and how it was that you could make history useful in the cultivation of a new, every new generation of military officers 
who had to confront ever new and challenging circumstances in the future. But through the, the careful, you know, systematic approach to the study of great commanders and failed commanders in the past, you could, you know, there, there are ways of developing those habits of thought. So another tremendous impact of, of the period in which Clausewitz lives, he's born before the French Revolution, the wars of the French Revolution. He lives through them. He sees the, the, the spectacular eruption of, of French power, the genius of Napoleon. He's the god of war, but also Napoleon's undoing, particularly with the invasion of, of Russia and, the, and the, this ill-fated campaign in the Iberian Peninsula. But Clausewitz identifies at the very center of that, of his life experience, the true sea change, which is the impact that the French Revolution had on warfare. And in fact, on the nature of war writ large, it wasn't just about the weapons and the organization and the uniforms. It is something has fundamentally changed. And what's changed is that war has become national again. Wars in the 17th and 18th century in Europe, where particularly the, the, the armies were generally small, lots of mercenaries, the uh, the uh, you know what citizen soldiers there would were would serve incredibly long terms of service. They would essentially be ripped out of society, and therefore war in society did not have a, a particularly intimate linkage. But with the French Revolution and and the death ground that, that France finds itself on, it undertakes national mobilization in which the people you know, the entire people, the nation become part of these considerations and kind of like that revolution in warfare in ancient China bring just so much more mass and energy volatility to warfare. So warfare goes from being a, a pretty limited affair, both uh, materially and in terms of what, you know, what changes on the map, little things to, you know, becoming nearly sort of an ideal type of total war, total mobilization for huge stakes, you know, the conquest and mastery of entire continents. And Clausewitz says, basically, we need new type of thinking to, re- to deal with this, this particular challenge. And yeah, the, the challenge is, is complexity. As things get bigger, things become more complex. And he talks about that, like warfare now, there's this fog, there's this friction. Sometimes you don't know what's going on. It's not you know, one plus two equals three. It's like one plus X and I don't know what X is. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, you know, the enlightenment, you know, the, the era in which Clausewitz grew up, when that came to the, the military realm, there was an effort to sort of subject war to the rules of science. And there's, there is a lot of science in war, lots and lots of science, but there's, you know, the idea that you could bring science almost to the realm of strategy, and that if you just sort of got the math right, you would have a formula for success. And Clausewitz admits that there's lots of mechanical sciences in war, but it's an inherently interactive thing. It's a political thing. So, you know, war is a political act. So policies can change. Political leadership can change over time. The bigger war gets as war becomes nationalized, the greater the fog and the friction. So, you know, it's pretty easy to get your son and maybe his best friend to the airport, you know, to catch a flight on Saturday morning. Imagine if you had to do that with your son and 10,000 of his closest friends. 
what is essentially an easy task as you increase the scale becomes so much more complicated. And the general has to be able to adapt to these elements of fog and friction. And one of Clausewitz's most brilliant additions to strategic theory is this concept I've sort of danced around before called the Trinity, which is, well, every war is different. At its core, each war, by his definition, has three component elements. One is that it's it serves a political purpose. So there's a rational reason. There's some item to be gained uh, by it. So it serves a sort of you know rational political reason. So it's so so there is reason there, and that's usually in the hands of the politicians. But war, by its very nature, both in terms of its origin, what gives rise to to wars, but also what happens in the course of wars can be increasingly dictated by passions, by non uh, sorry irrationality, where you know, we go to war against the opposing state not because we value Territory X, it's because we hate them, right? They're, they're Yankees fans, for Christ's sake. You know, there's some sort of primordial hatred uh, at the root. And then as war goes on, these irrational forces can you know, ebb and flow in the course of a war. So you have these this tension between war as a rational political act and, and war as this irrational paroxysm of primordial hatred. If that wasn't complicated enough, war takes place in the physical world. It is a contest between armies made up of human beings operating on terrain, in weather, it can rain, you know, beer supply can run out, all sorts of things can happen in this sort of contest. And in that realm, where it is the government that usually has control of the political reason, the population is usually the, the wealth, the people are usually the wellspring of that passion, that ir- those irrational forces. It is the general, in particular, the genius who rises above and who excels in that realm of what he calls chance and probability, where within which he says the creative spirit is free to roam. And he sees this in someone like Napoleon, whose actions on the battlefield, you know, even when he was just a general before he seized power, could have outsized effects on popular passions. So things he achieved on the battlefield could resonate with, with the passions of the people. He could achieve greater things on the battlefield than the politicians could ever hope for. So there is this tension between these three elements. And that's, without a doubt, Clausewitz's most important contribution among many. It sounds romantic, his, his ideas. It is. One scholar says he's, he's a child of the Enlightenment. So he brings to his study of war a lot of the apparatus of the Enlightenment. He talks about ideal versus real. He thinks about war as an abstract versus war in reality. What are the intervening variables? This sort of Newtonian approach. But he's a child of the Enlightenment, the scholar says, but a man of the Romantic era. So the Romantic era is not, not just about you know, romance per se. It's about there are these forces that are not, you know, subject to the laws of reason. And in war, that is, you know, that is fear. It's genius. It's moral forces, he calls them, all happening in that ever-changing, complex, friction-filled world. So at first glance, it looks looks so enlightenment, but you're right. It just 
it's it's so has has that so much you know indefinability of the of the romantic mindset. So Clausewitz, this was in the 19th century, correct? He, yeah, he he uh, he lived through the Napoleonic Wars. He he served the Napoleonic Wars, and I believe he died in the in the 1830s. So he he sits astride the, the French Revolution, and he was sort of a foundational force in the educational system for the Prussian military. So this is the 19th century. A lot has happened since then, but Clausewitz, people still, you know, we're still talking about him. You still teach him to your officers. And then during that time, new developments of strategy have come into place. You've had, you know, the changes in sea power. We have air power now. Nuclear weapons change strategy. What is, what's the state of strategy in the 21st century? Are you seeing any new developments in the works in terms of military strategy? Or are we, are we sort of remixing, sort of like a postmodern thing? We're just remixing stuff from the past over and over again. That's a, that's a great question. For example, in, in the realm of cyber, you know, we think about cyber as an utterly new technology. It creates new, it's a new type of, it's, 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 a, it's a form of terrain. It's an environment. So that sort of terrain and weather that Sunza talks about, it's, it's entirely new. So that would seem to demand fundamentally new approaches. And the things you can do with cyber, for example, you know, getting inside the adversary's, you know, intelligence gathering system, you know, to sow deception or to, you know, get information or to, you know, subvert their political process, all those things. So there are some that say, well, there, cyber, you know, completely new realm like air power was a century ago, requires a new set of theorists. And there, there are those theorists emerging. But others say, well, what cyber is really doing is, is essentially espionage, sabotage, and propaganda. And there's nothing new under the sun about those three things. And therefore, we can still learn from sort of classic approaches. So that, that's sort of the, the cyber domain. Terrorism, for example, you know, we've been waging this war on terrorism for, you know, essentially the entire careers of, of pretty much all of my students. And, you know, terrorism in, in the information age, when an ISIS video can be splashed all over computers in, you know, France or Northern California or, you know, wherever it is, radicalizing th- these youths who are so, you know, info savvy, but also feel so divorced from society, as it were, so radicalizable and the technology for radicalization, these sort of postmodern appeals to, you know, identity groups and, and, and the ability to, for, for example, a terrorist or a group of terrorists to get to achieve totally outsized strategic effects with a fairly, when you think about how a state would do it, with a fairly modest outlay of manpower and materiel. I mean, if you think about the September 11th attacks, we're talking several hundred thousand dollars, you know, a, a couple of hundred people involved in the in the operation itself. But think about the strategic and political effects of that relatively modest operation and how those were compounded by the information age. So wouldn't that itself demand, you know, a completely new set of approaches to strategy, both understanding you know, the strategic logic of 21st century terrorism, but also coming up with contextually appropriate, technologically savvy responses, approaches to counterterrorism. So there is that tension. And a lot of the, when you're going through these rapid periods of technological and political change, you get a lot of churn, a lot of new strategic theories that are just 
sort of reflexively uh, jettisoning the old ones. But what you usually end up with is, is you know, Clausewitz does better on Machiavelli. There's a lot in Clausewitz that is carried on, you know, by air power theorists and sea power theorists. So, and, you know, Clausewitz is alive and well in the 21st century, but that doesn't mean that you ignore the, the changes in the character of warfare and technology and society and politics, all those things. So that's understanding the environment in which you're operating. Well, Andrew, this has been a great conversation. Is there somewhere people can go to learn more about your work and what you do? I've got some products on the Great Courses website, thegreatcourses.com. I have a course there on Masters of War, which is kind of a, a survey of the great strategic theorists or the ones that, that I was able to fit into a 24 lecture course. I've got a course on Sun Tzu's Art of War. I recently did one on Imperial China, kind of getting back to my roots as a Chinese historian. And I uh, just really recommend that. Fantastic. Well, Andrew Wilson, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure, Brett. My guest today is Andrew Wilson. He is a professor at the Naval War College, also the lecturer of the Great Courses course, Masters of War, History's Greatest Strategic Thinkers. You can find that at the Great Courses Plus or the Great Courses. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Masters of War, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.